you may have already noticed that it's much brighter in here. We, we made special arrangements to have uh, the bulbs that had been burned out over the last several months. So it's Christmas Eve, so you'd be all excited to be here. Christmas Eve. I must, I must tell you, uh, Scott, I am very impressed with uh, the number of folks who have turned out this morning. You know, pastoring a church in Bangkok, Thailand, we never had this issue. Now, we did have floods. In fact, I remember once uh, preaching at this church in Bangkok where 14 people showed up out of a congregation of 300 because there were impending floods. Well, they never came, but uh, we were there nevertheless. So I'm very, very impressed that, that you would uh, uh, put up with the potential for a freezing rain, and that you're here this morning. So it's Christmas Eve 2017. Think about that. It's an amazing phrase in and of itself, right? Um, Is all of your Christmas shopping done? All your gifts wrapped? Believe it or not, Amazon is scheduled to deliver two items to our house tomorrow. And for the sake of the driver, I really hope it comes Tuesday as opposed to tomorrow. You know, a few years ago, I was dismayed uh, to learn of a church in Southern California uh, near where we lived advertising their Christmas Eve services with the following attention-grabbing bullet points. Experience live animals in our nativity scene. Capture the moment in our photo booth. Enjoy cookies and hot chocolate. Hop on board the Christmas train. Test your skills at the snowball toss. Dash through the water in a giant bubble roller. Wow. Really? It sounded more like a a carnival at the county fair than it did uh, ways to prepare to meet Emmanuel. This, This God with us that we've been singing about this morning. And unfortunately, that's how our culture approaches this very significant a day, today and, and tomorrow. Well, for this past month, uh, Pastor Scott has been skillfully navigating our way through Romans chapter 7, but at the same time, we've also encouraged you as families to invest some intentional time and effort to prepare yourselves uh, for during this Advent season. Uh, we have uh, given you some online resources that I hope many of you have been using. I know my family has. Uh, to uh, to great effect. We've also been lighting a different Advent candle each Sunday morning simply to turn our attention towards what is this season all about. Scott and I have had multiple conversations about this. Just this week, I was telling him how that I thoroughly enjoy this month of December. I thoroughly enjoy the Advent season. And it's not maybe for the reasons that you would think. It's not because of of all the, the, the glitter and the excitement and the joy but because it's an opportunity for us as a church to intentionally do things that maybe we wouldn't do otherwise that will lead us in that process of building disciples. That's really where my passion is. I want to see men and women being very intentional about following the footsteps of Jesus. And so Advent is a great time to do that. And and hopefully you as families have embraced that. And we've discovered, we've heard even again this morning, that uh, we've discovered the reality of, of Emmanuel. God with us. This reality, by the way, uh, prompts us to therefore give glory to God. As we give glory to God, that in turn produces joy in the world. And that in turn results in peace. 
Now, I want you to notice, there is a cause and effect relationship here. Without Emmanuel taking the initiative to be the God who is with us, then we don't know how to respond. But because He has, we respond automatically, naturally, in giving glory to Him. But as a result of giving glory to Him, those two other things, joy and peace, emerge. You take God out of the equation, you take give glory to God away from the beginning, and you're not going to have joy. You're just not going to have it. And there certainly won't be peace on earth. right? And we can see this in the world's desires for peace. Every president who has served since I've been born, and that's the last 65 years, have all promised peace in the Middle East. Really? That's about as silly as those bullet points I just read. Because it ain't going to happen without first giving glory to God. And so that's what we do this morning. That's what we've been doing this morning, is giving glory to God and thus looking forward to the, the, to the joy that that creates. Well, this morning, I want us to focus our attention uh, a little more tightly on Advent and specifically five promises that are fulfilled in Advent. Now, by definition, that word, the word Advent, it comes from the Latin. It simply means the approach or the arrival. And so this past month, this season of Advent is really a season of expectant anticipation and preparation for receiving the arrival of this Christ child who is our king. Well, more than 700 years before the birth of this Christ child, before the birth of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah expectantly waited for God's deliverance. And he wrote the words that we're going to look at this morning. I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. And as soon as you look, look at verse 2, you'll realize... Wow, this is a familiar passage, and we're specifically going to focus on verse 2, verse 6, and verse 7. So, Isaiah chapter 9. Let me read it for you. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Notice the last sentence. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, the nation of Judah, which is where Isaiah was living at the time and and giving messages from God to the people there, they were facing multiple threats. Internally, there was a moral, uh, spiritual rot that was corrupting God's people. And you can read about it in the previous chapters in Isaiah. Externally, there were multiple enemies that were lining up their armies, planning to attack. Thus, you had this kind of widespread feeling of panic. That sound familiar? (laughs) Think of our nation. Talk about moral and spiritual rot. We face that internally. 
And we do face multiple threats externally as well. So the, the message, the prophecy of Isaiah is very relevant to where we, we are today. Isaiah was sent by God to uh, the young King Ahaz. Now, King Ahaz was most likely in his late 20s. So for some of you sitting here that are in your uh, mid to late 20s, just think, think of that. That's the age of the guy that was on the throne at the time. And Isaiah was sent by God to remind this young man of these unbreakable promises that God had made for centuries. In fact, earlier in the context of this prophecy in chapter 7, verse 14, again, a very familiar verse. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, we know that both what we just read in chapter 9 and what we just see there in chapter 7, we know that those promises or prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus. We know that because in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, even John, um, they reference this. Specifically, Matthew references these prophecies essentially saying, this is all about Jesus. Well, it was all about Jesus in the future, but it was also warnings to uh, this King Ahaz. And with these great promises came an unbelievable warning. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 9, Isaiah said this to Ahaz. If you do not stand firm in your faith, in other words, if you do not stand on the promises that God has given you, then you will not stand at all. And that's unfortunately exactly what happened. Uh, King Ahaz did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. And as a result of that, uh, his kingdom crumbled. Uh, So these are promises for both Isaiah's time, Ahaz's time, but also they're promises for us today. And there's an element of promises yet to be fulfilled in the future. Whenever we think about or talk about Advent, it always implicitly implies that there is a second coming. There is, there is an additional time when Jesus will come back, and he'll come back very different. He won't come back born uh, from a, a virgin mother and laid in a manger, laid in a cave. He'll come back as a mighty warrior at that time. Before we look at the five specific Promises, and you may already be able to guess where we're headed with that. I want to just take a pause and talk just very quickly about the nature of promises or the nature of prophecies in the Scriptures. Jesus fulfills centuries of these kinds of promises. And this is for all of you mathematicians in the audience, those of you with a scientific bent, maybe computer programmers. So I'm going to give you a couple of things to kind of chew on. A few of you have heard me say this. I shared this a couple of weeks ago with our senior adults, and, and it's just an amazing uh, concept here. There are at least 365 promises in the Old Testament that point to Jesus' birth or his life or his death or his resurrection or even his second coming. Some commentators would say there's as many as 400. Others will say there's a little bit less than that. But there's at least 365. I like that number because there's one, you could say there's one for every day of the year, of our calendar year. And it helps us to kind of remember that. Well, let's talk about the mathematical odds of these promises coming true. Okay? If you look on the screen, you'll see there's a lot of zeros up there. The odds of a promise of these promises coming true in the person of one person, namely Jesus, 
are one-in-tenth to the 28th power. And, and not even to all 365. That's just to eight of them. That's a lot of zeros. It's hard to get our heads wrapped around that. What, you know, what does that mean? Well, let me give you an illustration. Take your best friend who happens to be an atheist. Okay, you, you know how that person is? You got somebody in your mind? Okay, take that person, take them down to the heart of Texas, deep in the heart of Texas, blindfold them, and then cover the state of Texas, the largest state in the lower 48. Cover the state of Texas with two feet deep of silver dollars. Okay, you with me? You still all got this? All right, then pull out a Sharpie and make an X on one of those. Okay, you got two feet deep of silver dollars covering the entire state of Texas, and you're going to mark one of them with a check mark, and then mix it all up. Blindfold this atheist friend of yours as you're doing all this, and then rip off the blindfold. The odds of one person, namely Jesus, fulfilling just eight of these 365 promises are the same as the odds of that guy or that woman picking up the silver dollar with the check mark out of that pool of silver dollars on his or her first try. That's crazy. And that's just for eight of them. There's at least 365. The point being is this, that these prophecies or these promises that are throughout the Old Testament, they do come true. They have come true. They will come true in the person of Jesus. And that's why we focus on, you know, when we, when we experience Advent, we light four Advent candles around the center candle, and the center candle represents Jesus because ultimately, and if we do have a service tonight, we'll light that one, is we focus our attention on Jesus because He is the focus of everything we're doing this this entire Advent season leading up to this actual birth. Let's, uh, Let's unwrap what I would call five Advent promises. And it, it's, to me, it's kind of like a kid sitting in the, on the floor in front of that tinsel-covered tree. Boy, I just dated myself. They don't use tinsel anymore. Tinsel-covered tree, just in great anticipation of what's behind that packaging. Well, let's look at some of the packaging here and what's behind it. The, the first Advent promise that Isaiah references here is that Jesus is, in fact, the kingdom of God wrapped in human flesh. That's what that word incarnate means. It means literally to be encased or enwrapped in human flesh. Look again at verse 6. For to me a child is, for, to, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. In the New American Standard uh, version, the, the, that is rendered, the government will rest. And it's an emphatic word. It will rest. It'll, it'll settle permanently on his shoulder. This, in fact, is the theme of Jesus' teaching throughout the Gospels. That term government means the rule or the dominion or the reign of someone. Jesus is that. He is the rule, the dominion, the reign of God, but in human flesh. And then in verse 7, as if his audience didn't get it, the first time he repeats himself and says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. This passage, Isaiah chapter 9, is, is easily connected to multiple other passages in Scripture. Those of you that have 
gotten to know me in the, in the few months we've been here, you know that, uh, that I, I frequently, frequently will say the best commentary on Scripture is Scripture. And so I'd like to just kind of call to your attention some, some other Scriptures that you can, in fact, take some time, invest some time, and look at them uh, later. The first one is this. As we reflect on Jesus as the kingdom of God wrapped in human flesh, the first one would be Jeremiah, a prophet who came along after the time of Isaiah. And in Jeremiah 23.5, and, and by the way, I'll leave these bullet point scriptures up here. You can jot them down. I'm just going to read portions of them. We won't turn to them this morning. But you can look them up later. In fact, I'd really encourage you to do that. In Jeremiah 23.5, Jeremiah says, I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king. This wasn't something Isaiah just talked about. Jeremiah talked about it as well. Uh, Jesus himself, in Mark chapter 1, as he begins his public ministry, uh, he heads off into Galilee. In fact, it's this same thing is repeated in Matthew chapter 3. In fact, it's in Matthew 3 where this passage, Isaiah 9, is quoted verbatim. But Mark renders it this way. He says that Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, the good news about God. Namely, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, he's here. He's in front of you. Jesus himself indicated to his audience, I am this kingdom of God. And then, of course, Paul, in the book of Philippians chapter 2, in that great passage where he's talking about how Jesus came, lived among us, died for us, and then one day, Paul says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Because of the fact of who he is, he is the kingdom of God wrapped in human flesh. Every knee is going to bow. In fact, uh, every knee of those in heaven and earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So first and foremost, Jesus as Emmanuel is God or the kingdom of God, the reign or the rule of God, he's among us, and he's encased in human flesh. He's someone we, could, we can look at. We can, his disciples could, could, could handle, uh, John says, could, could touch, they could hear, they could, they could see firsthand. Jesus is the kingdom of God. Secondly, and it's at this point that Isaiah, uh, he does something really interesting here, and without investing a little bit of time to, to understand what's going on, we, we miss it. He's referencing here something that he's seeing that's going to come, uh, come about in the distant future. Now, he's delivering this prophecy to Ahaz, but he, he has a much bigger picture, much bigger future in mind as he does this. And he gives four very specific names. We call them throne names. This would have been very acceptable in his day and time when you would, when you would inaugurate and put a, a new king upon the throne. You would do it with a lot of pomp, a lot of circumstance, and you would, you would give them names. You would give them character traits that describe who they are. And that's exactly what Isaiah does here. The first one is this. Jesus is Wonderful Counselor. This, uh, this term, wonderful counselor, oftentimes you'll hear it sung or you'll hear it uh, taught or preached on as two separate things. And that's fine. You can separate that. I'm going to put it together and just simply use wonderful as kind of an adjective. The word literally means marvelous. It means extraordinary. It means incomprehensible. In fact, it means miraculous. 
And of course, that's, that's who he is. He, he is a miraculous counselor. Uh, an angel actually came and told Joseph, he said, what's about to occur is, is a miracle. Mary, whom you've, you're engaged to be married to, you've not had sexual relations with her, but she's going to be pregnant. That's a miracle. She's going to be uh, pregnant with this child that, that God is sending. So Jesus is that miraculous, and, and I love the, the next term, counselor. That is, one who is able and willing to give wise and effective advice or plans. In other words, the counsel of this baby born in a feeding trough in a cave, born to be king, the counsel that he's going to give is going to transcend all human wisdom. And I think sometimes we miss sight of that. You know, even when we focus our attention on that baby in the, in the, the manger, we miss sight of that. Well, there's multiple other references you could look at. Here's the first three of what will be six. In Isaiah, again, uh, just two chapters later, Isaiah writes, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and strength. Or how about John 4.29? Do you remember that? That's the, the end of the discussion when Jesus meets a woman, a Samaritan woman, who it turns out is most likely a prostitute. He meets her at a well in Samaria, and at the end of that conversation where he very uh, carefully and lovingly kind of removes her masks that she'd been hiding behind, she runs into town and says to her neighbors, to the rest of her village, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Is not this the Christ? He is that wonderful counselor. Or how about the Apostle Paul again, Romans chapter 11. Paul, kind of enraptured with the delight of, of who this, this Jesus is, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Jesus is that wonderful counselor. Here's three more. Also, Paul in the book of Colossians says that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus. And then the writer to the Hebrews in both chapters 2 and chapter 4 says some things that are just wonderful. And they kind of parallel each other. I especially encourage you to look at these two passages. In Hebrews 2, the writer says, since the children share in flesh and blood, in other words, since the rest of us share in this humanity, He himself likewise also partook of the same. And since he himself was tempted, like us, yet without sin, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Jesus is able and Jesus wants to come to our aid. He wants to come to our counsel. He wants to give that sound advice that we need. Also in Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Earlier this week, uh, Debbie asked me, she goes, so which of those four throne names, which of those titles do you like the most? Do you um, kind of resonate with the most? She's always asking me these wonderful, really hard questions. You know, and it, it's, it's great, though, because it helps me really kind of unpack my message and, and make sure that it's really hitting Tim before Tim gets up to share it with everybody else. You know, and I said, I'm not really sure. And then I looked back at my notes and I realized, well, 
I'm giving you six. I'm giving you more references than any others to look at this. So this must be the one. And I think it is because that's who I want to relate to. I need, I need a wonderful counselor that I can run to in my time of, my desperate time of need. God is, God is not some uh, distant, uninterested, impersonal force. <laughs> I shared this with a, a Star Wars a friend this week, and I said, I'm not talking at you when I say this this morning, so I've already cleared that. But he's not. That's not the God we, we worship. That's not the God we serve, some force out there. Because of the incarnation, Jesus is our wonderful counselor. Let's move on. He's also, uh, thirdly, Isaiah says, he's also mighty God. Now, now, literally, that term as it's used in this verse means he's the heroic. He's the strong God. In other words, he's got the power, uh, as well as the desire, to execute this counsel, these plans, these purposes that he has for us. As the second person of the triune God, he possesses all the attributes of God, including all power, omnipotence. That's who Jesus is. This baby laid in a manger, that's who he is. He's mighty God. We see this again reflected uh, throughout the, the, the New Testament as well. We see in John chapter 1, the, that apostle who who walked almost probably closest with Jesus, wrote, The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And then he says, And then that Word became flesh. And He dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. We saw His glory. Also, Paul again in Colossians, he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. All things have been created through Him. And for him, and it's the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. He doesn't get a whole lot clearer than that, except in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is not only wonderful counselor, Jesus is mighty God. I once had a, um, a friend who was in a men's Bible study that I was leading in Southern California say to me, we were about to begin a study which ended up lasting many, many months, a study on the Gospel of John. And he said, you know what, Timmy goes, I don't think there's any, any uh, claim to the deity of Jesus in the Gospel of John. It's like, wow, really? I mean, how about starting with the first couple of verses? Yeah, verse one, yeah, verse one right? Jesus is, is all about this. He's, he is mighty God. He knows it. He claims it. Uh, the religious leaders around him, uh, they quickly picked up on, on the nuances of what he was saying. They wanted to stone him to death, believing he was committing blasphemy. Jesus is wonderful counselor. Jesus is mighty God. Jesus is also, Isaiah says, eternal father. He always has been. And he always will be. Uh, this word, one word in Hebrew, literally means father of eternity. It, it speaks of the source of something. So in other words, you could say he's, he's the source of eternity. He produces eternity and he directs eternity. The Apostle Peter in his first letter said, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. This is all very interesting, all very, uh, all very significant. Uh, there's a... 
There's a veiled reference to this when Jesus is speaking at, toward the end of his ministry, right before his crucifixion, when he's speaking with Pilate, who Pilate believes he has control over the destiny of, of Jesus' life. Pilate says to him, so you're a king. And Jesus answers with this curious answer, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. That in and of itself is a veiled reference to this fact that Jesus is eternal. Jesus did not start existing when they laid him in that major, or even at the point of conception. That's not when he started existing. In fact, um, some of you may have seen this in one of John Piper's devotionals earlier this week. That was one of the resources that we made available to you. Piper made a couple of comments that I want to share. One is this. The uniqueness of Jesus' birth is that he did not originate at his birth. The person, not the body, the person, the essential personhood of Jesus existed before he was born as man. His birth was not a coming into being of a new person, but a coming into the world of an infinitely old person. Wow. It's a very cool way to put it. He's eternal father. That great passage in Micah 5.2, which is where Micah the prophet um, identifies the actual location, the city of Jesus' birth, Bethlehem, we... We oftentimes focus on that and we don't see the last part of verse 2. The last part of verse 2 says, Whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. In other words, (laughs) from before the foundation of this world. Jesus has existed as the second person of the Trinity. Piper again. The mystery of the birth of Jesus is not merely that he was born of a virgin. That miracle was intended by God to witness to an even greater miracle, Piper says. Namely, that the child born at Christmas was a person who existed from of old, from ancient days. Jesus is wonderful counselor, and it's on his shoulders that the kingdom of God rests. But he's also mighty God, able to effect, powerfully affect all of his plans and purposes for us. And as such, he is eternal father. In fact, in Revelation 1, Jesus himself says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter. In other words, the first and the last. I am the one who is, who was, and who is coming, the Almighty. Jesus is eternal father. And as, as father or source of eternity, he's the one who opens the door to eternal life. Do you see the connection there? In fact... He calls himself the very door into life. No one gets eternal life except through the source of eternal life, namely Jesus. That's why this title by Isaiah is so, so significant. Because it it relates to how we come into this eternal life that God has made available to us. We come into it through Jesus because he's eternal father. Do you see that connection? This Again, this passage in Isaiah is rich. These aren't just words that we sing about. These are unbelievable, strong concepts that we can sink our teeth into and and believe and trust in. Let's look at the the fourth title. It's the fifth promise that we're referencing this morning. Uh, Therefore, as a result of these previous things that we've 
looked at, Jesus is the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Shalom among men. And again, that term Prince uh, could have been translated as Captain, uh, Chief, Leader. He's the, he's the Captain of Peace. A couple chapters later in Isaiah chapter 11, there's a great description of what a biblical peace of what shalom, the Greek term, really kind of looks like in, in verses 6 through 9 of chapter 11. Jesus himself says in John 14, peace I leave with you. He's talking to his disciples. He's, they're gathered around. He says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Therefore, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. He's the Prince of Peace. In Romans 5, once again, Paul says, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we have peace with God? Because of what Paul said at the beginning of that verse. We've been justified by faith. And we've been doing this this series now for many, many weeks on the book of Romans. And we've unpacked chapter 5 very specifically in in great detail because we've been declared righteous by our faith in the grace of God through Jesus We have peace. We have peace with God. Why? Because Jesus is the captain of peace. He is the Prince of Peace. This peace between us and God, though, it has, that's the vertical relationship. It has also a horizontal, kind of a spilling out relationship as well. And Paul describes that in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, Jesus himself is our peace, who made both groups, and he's referencing here Jews and Gentiles, the, the two factions that were at each other's throats, much stronger than any, any of the kind of um, intercultural factions that we're experiencing today. He himself was our peace who made both of these groups into one and broke down the barrier of dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, thus establishing peace, and so that he might reconcile both groups in one body to God. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. It's, it's the baby Jesus whom we celebrate tomorrow Uh, who does this because he's the captain of peace. He's the prince of peace. I just want to take a minute and just focus just very quickly on what is peace? What is shalom? People are asking or crying for peace all all around the globe. Well, how is it defined by God? It's, It's way more significant, way more than just absence of conflict or absence of war. In fact, depending on the context in the Old Testament, the term can be translated as completeness or wholeness or health, welfare, flourishing, safety, soundness, tranquility, prosperity, fullness, rest, harmony. Or how about this word? The word right out of our mission statement, delight. You know, that, that's why our church mission statement is our mission is to engage those disconnected from God so that they delight in Him, so that they shalom in Him, you might say, through Jesus Christ. Well, um, this, uh, this begs the question, does it not? Is, am I experiencing that kind of peace? Do you need that kind of peace? Are you 
feeling that kind of peace? Look, we have peace with God because our sin has been done away with and we've been declared righteous. We have peace with men because Jesus brings all these different people groups together into one body, His church. And we have peace in this world because we know that He's on the throne. The government rests on His shoulder. He's on the throne. He's in control. He is our sovereign Lord. And so we can be at peace. I I would be remiss if I didn't invite you this morning to seriously think about that. If you're sitting here, maybe you came as a friend or a relative with someone else. Maybe you came, you know, kicking and screaming to church on Christmas Eve. But um, Jesus wants to be that Prince of Peace in your life as well. And I would love, absolutely love, and I would stay after for hours. I don't care how much freezing rain is outside to talk with you about that. That's an offer. Uh, take me up on that offer if this, if this is resonating with you and you're not fully experiencing that. I also want to make a shameless plug for what's coming the next five weeks. Um, we are going to launch a new series next week, and, and then it's going to spill on into the month of January. Uh, and you, you can pick up a card about it. It says, Ask. Living without all the answers. We're going to answer some questions that you have asked or you have asked friends. What are some of the most significant questions? What would you like? To, what, what's, what's most on your mind with all that's happening in our world? And there's, there's a lot of stuff happening in our world. We actually give you the, the outlines of, of what we'll be speaking on every Sunday. Next week, it's going to be, is it okay to ask? We're going to deal with that and kind of launch that. Jesus as Prince of Peace, yet we live in a world of such conflict and and such a mess. Um, Why is that happening? And so we're going to deal with some of those those questions in the the weeks to come. In the summer of 1741, a 56-year-old composer, uh, suffering from poor health following a stroke and in considerable financial difficulty, he was at the low point of his musical career. Uh, he wanted to do, to do something different from what he had done previously, wasn't really sure where to go, and happened to have been reading in the book of Isaiah, in this very chapter 9 that we've been looking at here this morning. Well, captured by these scriptures, he set to work writing music that matched the glory and the meaning that he was gleaning from these texts. Twenty-four days later, George Frederick Handel finished Messiah. That's the most famous oratorio ever ever written. You remember the majesty. I don't think we're going to sing it this morning, but remember the majesty and the triumph of, of the Hallelujah Chorus. In fact, what do we do when we hear it? We, we all stand. Um, that twelfth song of the first movement captures the exuberance, the joy, the, the power, and the peace that Isaiah wrote about in Isaiah chapter 9. Notice the conclusion of this section in verse 7, the very last sentence of verse 7. The prophet Isaiah concludes with this statement. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. With indisputable zeal, with enthusiasm, with determination, with purpose, and with passion, God has fulfilled, is fulfilling, and will continue to fulfill these Advent promises that point to Jesus. Isaiah's listeners then and now uh, can be certain that 
our omnipotent, sovereign God in the person of Jesus will, will stand behind these promises. As Emmanuel, as sovereign king among us, he invites us to worship him, to be in relationship with him. As that wonderful counselor, Jesus comes with wisdom and purpose and a perfect plan for our lives. As the mighty God, he's got the ability to accomplish those purposes that he has for us. And as everlasting Father, he loves us forever. And as the Prince of Peace, he reconciles us to himself first and then to others as well. Let's pray.